Happy Pride. Happy Pride Month. And actually, let's declare it a summer of pride. Happy summer of pride. Pride season? Absolutely not. I don't know about you guys, but I am so beyond ready for Pride Month to end. And that's what we're going to get into in this podcast. More Pride Month insanity. And I will explain why I am so, so glad it is finally coming to an end. Then, later in the show, we'll talk with gay journalist Glenn Greenwald about how the LGBT movement has changed over the years and turned its back on freedom of speech. If you're new here, I'm Brad Palumbo, and you're watching Damage Control, a podcast where we're reclaiming the LGBT community from the insane leftists that have taken it over. Now, let's get into it. So as you saw there, a top Biden official, Rachel Levine, says that it should be pride season, but absolutely not. From where I sit, I can't wait for this month to be over because I've just seen instance after instance of things going on that are demented or strange or have no business actually being connected with gay people or LGBT people. And in fact, I think on net that this month has only done harm to our public image and to our acceptance. I'm going to run through a couple examples of that with you guys, but unusually, you know, I show you the video. I actually can't show you the video for some of this. I'm literally not allowed to show you this video. So I'll just describe to you what I'm watching. It's video from Seattle Pride over the weekend, and there are naked men, not scantily clad, actually naked with their entire butt, the entire package hanging out, riding bikes down the street as part of this pride parade in front of rows of children sitting on the ground. And that was not the only example of literal blatant nudity and flashing at the pride parades this past weekend. We also had a march in New York City, the DYKE march, where a bunch of people were just going completely topless down the street in front of children, revealing their breasts to the world. Now look, I am certainly not a nudist, but if adults want to get together somewhere and parade around naked, honestly go for it, I could not care less. But it is bizarre and disturbing to see people exposing their genitalia to children in the name of LGBT pride. That's sick. That has nothing to do with us. And in fact, you're reinforcing harmful stereotypes that aren't true, that for decades people falsely believed our community were more likely to harm children. So what do you do? You go to the biggest, most publicized events associated with the LGBT community and harm children. Absolutely not. And frankly, I don't know the local laws in these places, but it seems illegal. And if it is, they should be arrested for that. But to the audience, I just want you guys to know these videos go viral and I know you see one after another, but they're really not representative. If I were to walk around in an average gay bar anywhere and show people that video, I bet you at least nine out of 10, if not 9.9 .9 out of 10 gay or lesbian people would say, oh, no, that's weird. Don't do that. No, I, I would never do that. But these viral incidents make us all look bad and they need to stop. If the end of Pride Month means this kind of shit will stop coming across my timeline, it cannot come soon enough. On this same topic, take a listen to this clip from New York City Pride where some activists were literally chanting, we're coming to get your children. So this is demented and deranged and disturbing. 
But I will point out that it wasn't most of them. A lot of them seemed to be chanting something else. But whoever these individuals are who were chanting, were coming for your children, yikes. At first, I thought this might just be a totally one-off thing, not worth discussing. But then NBC News ran an article saying the, quote, coming for your children chant has been used for years at Pride events, according to longtime March attendees and gay rights activists, who said it's one of many provocative expressions used to regain control of slurs against LGBTQ people. And in this case, they said, right-wing activists are jumping on a single video to weaponize an out-of-context remark to further stigmatize the queer community. Well, maybe you idiots should stop giving them so much ammunition. Have you thought about that? Maybe in response to homophobic people labeling people unfairly as predators, you shouldn't chant, we're coming for your children. I get that they may mean this tongue in cheek, like they're trolling. They don't actually mean they want to harm kids, but it's such a disturbing and counterproductive thing to say. How can they not see this? How do they not understand this? It seems obvious to me. As a gay man, I would never dream in a million years of running my mouth like this, of acting like this in public, of sabotaging my community so blatantly just because I want to be edgy or troll conservatives. Yes, some people on the right will not pick and will use this kind of thing to smear all LGBT people even though most of us don't agree with it. But they couldn't do that if the radical fringe activists didn't keep giving them ammunition all the time. I am begging these people to stop helping our community. I'm also disturbed by the intolerant attitudes I keep seeing on display at these pride marches. In this next video, a woman went to a pride event in New York City, and she says she's a former trans rights activist and LGBT nonprofit whistleblower. She's holding up a sign that says, defend female sex-based rights, girl, woman, female, you get the message. So she's out there disagreeing with a lot of this agenda. And instead of people debating or discussing, they surround her and mob her. They, some of them push her. She also said they, she was kicked and hit. And uh, you can hear them cussing at her and calling her vile names. Uh, take a look at this. I'm sorry, but when you find yourself assailing the people who disagree with you, you're not the good guy. When you find yourself trying to shout down the people who disagree with you, there might be some problems with your argument that you must be trying to cover up. Any vision of social justice that doesn't respect basic free speech rights isn't social justice at all. It's the same old oppressive, regressive ideology and behavior simply packaged in a new way from a different team. It's disgusting. It's demented. These people, I don't know who they think they're representing, but they're out here looking like an illiberal mob and giving our whole community a bad name. I don't know how many 
many times I have to explain to people that you can't have it both ways. You either support free speech for everyone, yourself and your opponents, or you support it for no one. Not your opponents, but not you either, because that is the inevitable result. When you start restricting free speech, when you start bullying and shouting people down who have different opinions, all of this, it all ends in the same place, and it is a dark and disturbing one, not a progressive one in any meaningful sense of the word. The Pride Month insanity that I've been covering here on Damage Control is so out of control that even people in within the community who are liberal, who are not right-wing, who are not commentators or anything like that, are starting to call it out. Take a look at this video that is blowing up on TikTok of a based gay dude calling out the Pride Month insanity. My fellow LGBTQIA+, baby, y'all are doing too much. And yes, I'm going to be the one to say it because if a straight person says that y'all going to say they're homophobic, this, that, and the third, and it's like, no, boo, you're just doing the most and it's really not cute. Because can someone explain to me why I'm seeing all these pride videos, people in the streets acting like they ain't got no home training, but us see Bucci, Chi-Chi's all out on display for everybody to see, middle New York, broad daylight, minors present, like when it, since when is that okay, sis? Because it's not. And bitch, don't get it twisted. On a scale of one to classy, I'm not giving royal family by any means. Like I love to turn up, shake some ass, and have a good time, but bitch, time and place. And, th and that was not it. Y'all, when I tell you I saw this chick, practically nothing on, on top of a water fountain, water spraying all up in her cookies, nookies, and crannies, a, a bit. I'm just wondering what type of antibiotic that doctor's gonna prescribe for all that. People hanging from street lights, hooking up on the side of the road. What in the land before time, Neanderthal behavior? Raggedy is the word for it. They already don't us like that, and this is how you want them to perceive us. Pride is an event based around acceptance and equality, not an excuse for y'all to act a fool. All right, y'all. As long as you guys know that that does not represent the entire LGBTQIA plus community, even I'm like, what the do better. So I really appreciate the points that he makes in this video. Firstly, he's absolutely right that people like us have to speak out because they will just shout bigot at anybody who's not part of the community who tries to make these obvious points. It's just common sense that there shouldn't be nudity and public indecency in front of minors, and that's not something any sane gay, lesbian, or transgender person should want associated with our community in any way, shape, or form. And he points out correctly that this is only playing in. This kind of insane behavior at the Pride events that we keep seeing weekend after weekend is only playing into the hands of our critics and our haters who already have these preconceived notions about us that aren't true for the whole population, but these activists and these people at these events keep giving them anecdote after anecdote that does confirm the worst stereotypes. I do want people to understand exactly the point he makes, that this stuff does not represent all LGBT people, not even close. Most of us are sane and normal and just Americans like anybody else, and we don't want to go biking down the street in the nude in front of kids or flash our bare chests to minors or do any of the crazy crap we keep seeing at these pride parades in New York City or Seattle. We're actually just like you guys, and we just want to be left alone. But these activists are making that harder and harder for us to achieve. It's going to take people like me or people like this guy to speak out and stop this from within the house, because unfortunately, you've got to police your own. No amount of outside group pressure is actually going to change anything until people within the LGBT community stand up and don't worry about getting canceled, don't get worried, don't worry about being called a bigot or a name, and actually call out this insanity, because they all know it's madness, right? Most of them know it's crazy, but they just won't speak out because they don't want to be canceled. They don't want to lose friends. They don't want to be offend the people uh, who follow them. And I'm sorry, some things are more important 
than being sensitive or not offending anybody. And sometimes you got to speak out when it matters. So I'm glad he did exactly that. And I'll keep doing so on this podcast. All right, guys, we'll leave it there on that. Let's jump into my conversation with journalist Glenn Greenwald on how the gay rights movement has changed over the years and is now in some ways unrecognizable. Glenn, thanks so much for coming on Damage Control. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for, for asking me. So you are just a couple years older than me. Uh, so I want to pick I think your like brain. one or two, maybe at the most. Yeah, maybe just a couple years. So I want to pick your brain. Take me back to when you started your career as a gay journalist. What were things like back then? Well, I became a journalist when I, you know, when I was uh, still in my mid thirties. So the memories, the earliest memories I have of the gay movement were more from when I was in law school. And then working as a lawyer in, in New York, I had gone to, I went to NYU for law school and this was in the early nineties. And it was at the time, one of the kind of the one act up had matured as this, uh, very effective advocacy organization for influencing the government to make, uh, HIV and AIDS medications more available to do faster clinical testing, the kind of villain or one of the central figures back then that's how long he's been around was Dr. Fauci and the kind of gay and lesbian movement itself. And it was really referred to it that way then more so than LGBT, which is a much newer term was about very little other than the principle that adult Americans have the absolute right to decide for themselves what constitutes fulfillment and self-actualization and happiness in their lives and that the choices they make about their personal lives and their private lives and their sexual lives and their family lives have is no business of anybody else, not the governments, not your neighbors, not your state, not your city. And that the role of all those entities is not to interfere in your life, to try and control it, to try and interfere in it, but to facilitate whatever the sense of happiness is that each individual adult citizen has adopted for themselves and ultimately that became a very appealing principle for Americans who still have this very kind of libertarian ethos when it comes to cultural issues, this live and let live mentality. And ultimately once these demonization stereotypes were combated, these longtime stereotypes that had been deliberately cultivated about threats to children and the like, and people began to look at gay lesbian gay men and, and lesbians as human beings and not these cartoon caricatures, which was facilitated by more and more people coming out, it was not that difficult to convince Americans that there was no reason to have the government try and interfere in or control or constrain the lives of your neighbors. Yeah, so that sounds a little bit alien to me. It sounds wonderful, but it sounds a little bit alien to me as somebody whose political consciousness really began in like 2014, 2015, uh, because... First off, I'm not old enough to remember when it was still called the gay rights movement. Now it's like the word gay or lesbian are rarely used. Uh, it's LGBT or LGBTQ or LGBTQIA2 plus uh, or whatever the new acronym is. How has it changed over time? Like, like do how much resemblance do today's LGBT activists bear to the gay rights advocates in the 90s, for example? Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see in the changing of the flag that metaphorical evolution that you're describing where what was once the rainbow flag, the symbol of the lesbian and gay movement, is being increasingly crowded out. There's barely any more space for it left as all these other symbols 
kind of start penetrating uh, in, in a sort of aggressive way, pushing off to the side that original movement. I think that is an effective metaphor for understanding what happened. You know, I don't want to simplify uh, the nature of the gay and lesbian movement. Obviously, you're talking about a lot of different people with a lot of different ideologies. And back then, even in the early 90s, which is when I first started becoming politically aware in the sense of gay and lesbian rights, there was, of course, even in the ACT UP movement, some people who wanted to politicize this movement and make it about more than just gay and lesbian issues. They wanted to import or smuggle in a whole variety of other ideological, unrelated ideological convictions. But they were largely the minority. They did not succeed. The gay and lesbian movement focused very tightly on these kind of narrow set of issues about the lives of gay men and lesbians in the United States. And originally it was controversial. You know, Andrew Sullivan was, whatever else you think of him, deserves an immense amount of credit as kind of one of the pioneers to be one of the first really vocal advocates of the idea of gay marriage at a time when no one thought that was possible. I mean, no, there was when that was talked about, it was considered some sort of ridiculous pipe dream that would never happen. The most radical among us in politics would only talk about the possibility of civil unions, and even that was considered almost too radical to uh, be acceptable. But when Andrew Sullivan was talking about gay marriage, a lot of people inside the lesbian and gay movement were very much against it because they thought marriage was a very bourgeois and conservative institution designed to de-radicalize gay culture and the gay and lesbian movement. Of course, that was part of it. It was designed to say, just because we're gay men or lesbians, we don't need to live this, you know, fringe, uh, hedonistic lifestyle. There was a lot of internal debate, of course, about that there would be with any movement. But by and large, the movement as it grew and matured and then ultimately as it triumphed was very much focused on the idea that adults have autonomy and that autonomy, as long as it involves consenting adults and there's no one being harmed by it, should be given the full panoply of legal rights to live their lives freely and happily and equally. And that, as I said, was the vision that ended up prevailing. So on, I'm interested. I recently saw a video of a Christian protester at a pride parade. We discussed this on the podcast last week where he was arrested by the police for disorderly conduct, though there was none. So the charges were dropped. He was just arrested because they didn't want him protesting at a pride parade. And that stuff happens. It was a one-off incident. I was disturbed because when he was put in handcuffs, the most of the crowd erupted in applause, clapping at this dissenting viewpoint being arrested, being squashed with the arm of the state. And like you mentioned, there's tremendous diversity within the LGBT people who are somewhere under that umbrella. People like you or me are not representative of uh, these. These folks are representative of us. But I do think, especially in the context of the trans debate, there is a new strain of LGBT activism, especially in the halls of like political activists, that is some to, pretty blatantly openly hostile to dissenting viewpoints or to free speech or open debate whether it's the idea of punching turfs right the term they use for feminists who don't accept transgenderism or cheering at somebody being arrested for a different viewpoint would that be alien to gay activists of yesteryear or was that attitude also prevalent then even though they were the minority viewpoint no, I think it's the best point. You know, for me, the tipping point moment or one of the transformative moments was when gay activist groups sued that small bakery in Colorado and demanded that they 
make wedding cakes, um, celebrating same-sex couples, even though their religious conscience counseled against it. And even though I understand, in theory, the argument that people should have the right for public accommodations and to be treated equally, the reality is there were all sorts of alternatives available to the people in that town. Just one little outpost of dissent was saying, we don't believe in same-sex marriages. They weren't attacking anybody. They weren't assaulting anybody. They weren't trying to interfere in anyone's rights. They were actually defending their own rights of conscience. And this wasn't enough. And they went to the Supreme Court and insisted that they be forced against their own will to make these cakes honoring an institution that they believed in their own religious conscience was sinful. And that to me shows this fundamental transformation. There's another Supreme Court case now pending very similar to that one because the Supreme Court kind of sidestepped the question. And that is the idea that when gay men and lesbians began to organize and form and create this kind of identity around sexual orientation, gay men and lesbians were very much a minority group. And as a minority group in any pluralistic society, your obligation is to convince a majority of people who don't share that characteristic of yours that you deserve equal treatment. And that requires con convincing and persuasion. You don't have the force, the ability, the standing to impose your will the way majorities do. That's kind of a luxury of the majority. And so just like the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King was about protesting in order to persuade white Americans that black Americans were being treated unjustly or women who, even though they weren't the minority in that same sense, certainly in terms of their status and power, were had to convince the society they deserved equal rights as well. That was the posture of gay men and lesbians. And as a result, the emphasis was on convincing other people that we pose no threat to them, that in fact, the society would be strengthened and better off if we endorsed and reaffirmed this principle of the right of autonomy and individual choice. What has happened is that the gay and lesbian movement, now the LGBTQI2 plus movement, the acronym seems to expand on a weekly <laughs> basis, has really become a movement of power. Every institution of authority practically is on the side of this movement. They have the banks behind them, corporations behind them. The president hangs the... Uh, LGBT flag at the White House. It has become a movement that has the support of almost every sector. And as a result, it has become a bullying movement, just like any power corrupts people and corrupts movements. I believe that's what happened with LGBT, uh, the LGBT movement as well, where it's no longer sufficient to say, let us live our lives the way we want. It has now become, we're going to force you to live your life the way we want. We're going to force you to teach your children things that you don't believe in. We're going to force you to affirm ideas that you don't actually believe and we're going to tolerate no dissent any dissent at all to our agenda we're going to interpret as some kind of hate crime or something that deserves violence because we're so convicted and so righteous in our movement that anybody who dissents from any part of our agenda is automatically somebody who deserves punishment and to watch this kind of bullet bullying mentality prevail that really is this kind of characteristic of mob justice we have all the force on our side we have all the power we see these two people over here in this corner and one person over there in that corner who's speaking ideas that we dislike and now we have to go destroy them that is something i find extremely alienating and very very contrary to the movement to which i had previously felt an affinity yeah that's one of the big things that's so off-putting to me as a civil libertarian as a free speech hardcore free speech supporter, the modern movement really turning its back on that. I also think it's remarkably short-sighted because many of their ideas that they're now pushing are minority viewpoints. 
uh, whether some of the more extreme stuff beyond just trans adults live and let live, the stuff beyond that are still very minority viewpoints, and yet they are no longer embracing tolerance for minority viewpoints, and they don't seem to see the contradiction there. I also I want to ask you about specific groups that were once you know paradigms of the uh, gay rights activism and community, like the Human Rights Campaign, for example. They've been around since about 1980, but they recently, in the year 2023, June 2023, declared an unprecedented state of emergency for LGBT rights, saying, like, this is like never before. Look, I wasn't alive in the 80s and 90s, but I, well, I was born in 97, but I'm, I, I'm literate, right? So I, I know that, I know that to be an absurd statement, but as somebody who lived through it, how do you even respond to a statement like that, that 2023 is somehow worse than the 80s and 90s for gay and trans rights? It's, I mean, it's just laughable. It's so preposterous. I, that said, it is true that the war that the LGBT movement is now waging on the core animating principles that were responsible for its success in the first place, namely the idea that adults have the right to live their lives however they want, the way it's deliberately now expanded into talking about people's children and what should happen to children, even suggesting that people who have children who are confused about their gender or dysphoric in their bodies have the legal responsibility to provide them with medical care that will change their bodies permanently. And if they don't, they can be accused of child abuse and have their children taken away from them by a state that has decided that they know better for what those people's kids than those parents do themselves. Or just increasingly playing with the fire of talking about we're coming for your children. That video from 2021, the San Francisco uh, choir, the gay choir that I'm sure you've seen, which was all about we're coming to take your children. Of course, it wasn't about we're pedophiles and we're coming to molest your children. But it was playing on that fear deliberately, which is something, you know, you do not do if you're a minority group trying to persuade people. We spent a lot of time trying to uproot that stereotype because it's based on so much instinctive uh, impulses. You know, I have kids now. I'm a father. I'm a parent. I understand how visceral the impulse is to protect your kids from anybody that you think is going to endanger them or threaten them or put them in any kind of harm's way. So when you have a movement that's standing up and saying, like, we're now about not adults any longer, but about children and prepubescent teenagers and teenagers and are chanting, we're coming for your children or singing songs, we're coming for your children, and increasingly wage war on the idea that people have the right to live and let live, but instead are saying, no, we don't believe in that any longer. We want to force you to live in accordance with our vision. What's happening now is that even the gains that have been won are now starting to be threatened because the culture war has been reopened. There was a consensus in the culture war. You can go back and look at 2015, even before Obergefell, the Supreme Court case that ruled that same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. The trend overwhelmingly, as you probably know, Brad, was that states were democratically enacting same-sex marriages. Very few were going backwards. Public opinion polls were showing large majorities of Americans in favor of same-sex marriage, including young conservatives, demographic groups that had traditionally been imposed, even the ones that were still opposed. The, all the trends were in the positive direction. And even for trans people, trans adults, something like 75%, three out of every four Americans believe that trans people deserve the right of protection in their homes and their jobs against discrimination. 
No one cared about trans adults. Nobody was looking to go and attack the rights of trans adults until what happened was in 2015, the culmination of the movement was that people want marriage equality. And we have the full panoply of legal rights. And the problem is what activist groups cannot tolerate is success. You're talking about the human rights campaign. It is a multi-million dollar organization. It is just embedded into huge amounts of money. The people who work there get big sinecures for life. And if you're an activist, the one thing you ironically do not want is to win because when you win, it's time to pack up and go home. There's no more reason for your job anymore. There's no victimization for you to fight against. And they need victimization. And the only way they can get it is by deliberately going into those areas where Americans say, no, that's too far. I don't agree with that. And that means right now targeting people's children, talking about their children, knowing that that's going to produce this kind of anger and rage. And then within that anger and rage that they deliberately provoked, they get to then reaffirm their victimhood status with kind of absurd bulletins about travel advisories or that's the NAACP or just like this state of emergency. What obviously gay men and lesbians and all LGBTs have never had it better in the United States than now because these groups need that. They need that. And the problem with it is not just the creation of false victimization, but the deliberate attempt to steer the agenda into places that they know Americans will not go. And only then can they continue to justify their agenda. And that's threatening now. It's unraveling that consensus I talked about. It is now bringing back into question all of those stereotypes about gay men and lesbians, the question of whether our families deserve legal protections, whether we should be able to adopt children, whether we should be able to be married. And it's because they're waging war on the fundamental principle that led to victory in the first place. They are. And I do totally agree. You can see it in the polling, but also I've noticed it even before the new polling on the right, a backsliding. I really feel that a few years ago, the right was in a much more live and let live position, but now the old homophobia is resurgent a little the anti-trans stuff is dialed up to a 10 out of 10 they're not just upset about kids transitioning they're not just upset about um you know women's sports making sure it's fair with biological realities i, I some people the matt walsh's of the world the michael knowles of the world they're they're coming out and they're pushing these authoritarian in their own right approaches of ban adults from transitioning right? Make a quote unquote, eradicate transgenderism from public life. What do you make of, of this newfound backlash? Because I view it as, as dangerous. I view it as part of the reason I launched this show was to chart a centrist, reasonable path that rejects the, the left stuff without giving in to this, this new right wing uh, backlash. Yeah, I find some of the stuff on the right coming from the people you identified, Matt Walsh and others, to be genuinely fascist, genuinely alarming and authoritarianism. An authoritarian, he makes no secret about the fact that he isn't just opposed to gender-affirming care for children, but also for adults. Uh, Michael Knowles talked about the eradication of transgenderism, and yes, he was talking technically about an idea and not a group of people in terms of genocide, but he knew the words he was playing with. And he's talking about eliminating the idea of transgender people from the country entirely. That kind of language is dangerous and it's alarming and it's completely against every value that I have. I strongly believe in the need to create a society that allows adults to pursue their happiness in the way that they want, not the way that Matt Walsh wants or that Michael Knowles wants. The problem is those people didn't have space six or seven years ago. They were a tiny little fringe marginalized minority to whom nobody paid any attention. They had no foundation to kind of spread this hateful ideology because like I said, this consensus was spreading. 
And what usually happens in any kind of war is that the extremists on both sides need each other because they're the justification that gives the fuel to each of them. So the human rights campaign and very radical trans groups love Matt Walsh because they get to point to him and say, look at how endangered we are. And Matt Walsh loves the most radical activists and the trans movement because he gets to stand up every day and say, look at this insane, threatening thing this person just said and spread this generalized hatred for gay men and lesbians, for even for trans people who don't ascribe to those, who, who, to the, who don't subscribe to those ideologies. And it's this kind of very codependent relationship that they now have, but the space got opened up for that. The kind of ground became nutritious for it only because of the abandonment of these core principles that have long sustained the gay and lesbian movement. You and I will just have to keep uh, banging the drums for those principles. One last thing I want to pick your brain on. I saw you commenting on this on Twitter, and I was particularly disturbed. GLAAD, which is one of the major, you know, LGBTQ activist groups, they just published a letter calling on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter to, quote, take action against the rise of anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ hate and disinformation. It's signed by uh, celebrities like Elliot Page, Ariana Grande, Shawn Mendes, Camille Caballo, known uh, known experts in medical science. Um, I was particularly hard hit, as Shawn Mendes has always been my celebrity crush, to see him going woke and getting political, really disappointing. But yeah, they're calling on these platforms to uh, meet with community leaders and address, and I think we all know that means censor, quote, content that spreads malicious lies about medically necessary trans health care or accounts and content that perpetuate anti-LGBTQ extremist hate and disinformation, dehumanizing hateful attacks on prominent trans public figures, anti-trans hate speech, including misgendering, dead naming, and hate-driven tropes. Now look, some of the things they mentioned are bad, of course, you know, nobody supports like harassment or bullying, but a lot of what they just said is calling to stifle debate or conversation about complex and evolving issues. Like I don't pretend to be an expert in trans healthcare, but I do know that European countries, Nordic countries, the UK are siring, they are ringing the alarm about what the proper treatment should be for trans treatments for kids. And they're saying there's, this approach is not right. In the US, everyone's still saying it's right, but glad it seems to me these activists are literally calling for censorship and to shut down debate. And I find that alien. Censorship is a tool of the majority. It has always been a tool of the majority and it always will be because the way in which censorship works is that institutions of power are able to silence dissenters and people who hold minority views. So when you see the LGBT movement turning to censorship, exerting its influence within the halls of the largest corporate giants, the most powerful and richest corporations ever to exist in human history, which is big tech, that alone illustrates the fact that the LGBT movement has become a movement of the establishment, a movement of power, and they're seeking to abuse that power, as human beings will do when they have it, by trying to silence others. And the irony of this, of course, is that for decades in the United States, censorship was something that was weaponized against gay men and lesbian. Our art and our books and our activism all were silenced by force of law. People were forced into the closet because of that. And now they're taking that same exact weapon that was so long used against gay men and lesbians and trans people and trying now to weaponize it against people who are critical 
of this movement. And that's what happens when you become a movement of the establishment. I should also say so many of these establishment groups that are self-identified LGBT groups are really just Democratic Party activist groups. Yes. Just as it's true as of, say, the NAACP or the Anti-Defamation League groups that purport or NARAL or, or uh, Planned Parenthood groups that purport to be about anti-Semitism or racism or uh, women's rights, which in fact are nothing more than just arms of the Democratic Party. That is exactly what HRC has become. And everybody knows that. Everybody sees it. Um, and so, you know, Bernie Sanders got in a lot of trouble in 2016 when he was asked what the establishment was, the Democratic establishment that he was constantly ranting against. And one time Planned Parenthood and HRC attacked Bernie Sanders because, of course, they wanted Hillary Clinton to win. And he said, that's the kind of group I'm talking about. These are part of the establishment. And they absolutely are. They have the halls of power on their side, big money on their side. And when you have real power on your side, you start going to look how you can use that power to silence and destroy your enemies. And the fact that they're now appealing to big tech to prevent people from misgendering, which essentially means people who don't intellectually recognize the arguments that a man can become a woman or a woman become a man, which I'm not in favor of. I do respect people's self-identified gender as a matter of kind of courtesy and social nicety. But the idea that people who don't should be censored and silenced and booted off the internet is so dangerous, both in general and when it comes to this movement, for exactly the reason that you said, that at any moment, that can easily be used against them because they espouse ideas that only small minority uh, minorities of Americans support. And when you start trying to implement censorship and you are a minority group, you're playing with fire. Well, Glenn, I know you do most of your work on national security, civil liberties, foreign policy, all this stuff, but I really appreciate your voice. There aren't enough people who are kind of dissident on these issues because it comes with slings and arrows. So thank you for speaking out and uh, thanks for coming on. I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing as well, using your platform as a young gay man to talk about these issues to make clear that, and it is true, not only gay men and lesbians, but also a lot of trans people feel very alienated by and uncomfortable with this prevailing ideology. And the more we hear from them, I think the better. So keep up the good work and I'm happy to talk to you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Damage Control. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you're subscribed, like, comment, yada, yada, yada. And if you're listening, take a second to rate and review this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. It really helps us get up there in the rankings. With that, I'll see you all next week.